Good morning, everyone. Congratulations on your step forward you took last week and calling a new pastor. That's exciting. I'm excited for all of you and know that God has some great things in store for Clarksburg Baptist Church for each and every one of you as you serve him faithfully here. We are, as Andy said, celebrating 4th of July. Anybody have any plans for a cookout or family coming over or anything? Yeah, like three of you do? Right. Raise your hands if you're going to do something on 4th of July. That's better. That's better. Some of you are. For those, for those who don't have their hands raised, pay attention. Some of you invite them over. Those poor people don't have anything to do on the holiday, okay? We, huh? Need more hot dogs? <clears throat> if you think about who we are as a country, you think about the fact that I know personally I'm very, very glad that I'm a, a citizen of the United States of America and very proud to be so. But with that comes a lot of responsibilities. As a matter of fact, when we look in the Bible, when we look at what God, how God deals with nations, uh, the greatest example is the nation of Israel. And Israel had every right to say, I'm proud to be an Israelite. I'm proud to be a part of this nation. Yet with all of those uh, rights that they had, all of those blessings that they had, came tremendous responsibilities. And the funny thing is, is every time Israel got in trouble was when they started paying more attention to their rights than they did their responsibilities. And I think as the United States of America, we may want to take heed of that. And the fact that the more we argue about what rights we have, the more we argue about what we deserve and all those sorts of things, sometimes we can get lost in the fact that we are blessed to be a blessing to whom much is given, much will be required. And I think that also goes into church life, that we sometimes want to think about and concentrate on what our rights are as members of a church or as part of the church rather than what is our responsibility. I know that a lot of us have been guilty, I think, of, of selecting a church and a direction and that kind of thing on where I want to go, what I want to do, what I like. And the reality is we ought to select what we do in church and where we go on what God wants me to do and what is my responsibility and my calling to serve others through that congregation and to make a difference in the lives of others. And that kind of ties into what we've been looking at in these churches in Revelation. And I haven't been with you for a couple of weeks, but we're going to jump right back in there. If you want to go ahead and turn over to uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, we're going to be looking at verse 18 this morning. But first, let's go to the Lord in word prayer. Father, we come before you today and we do thank you for the blessing and the opportunity of being part of this great nation. We do ask forgiveness, Lord, for those of us who are a part of this nation who have allowed certain things to happen that aren't godly. We ask forgiveness for our role in that, and we also, Lord, pray that you will give us strength to be a blessing to others. Pray as a church, Lord, for the Clarksburg Baptist Church that as you move them into this new venture in ministry, this new era, this new part of their history, Lord, that, that they will be faithful to you as they have been in the past and that lives will be changed. People will not only come to know you, but they will grow deeper in you. They will become who you want them to be and do what you want them to do through the ministry of this church. This morning, open our hearts and open our minds to what you would have us hear. Keep us from thinking about others who need to hear these words and help us to remember that these words apply to us first. So speak to me in the midst of this time, and it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> On Friday, <clears throat> my wife asked me to stop at Kroger's and get a watermelon on the way home from work. 
And I obliged, as I always do when my wife asks me to do anything. And I went to Kroger's and I found these watermelons in this great big box. And they were sitting on this kind of wooden pallet that was stacked up about two feet off of the ground. And I walked over and I picked up a watermelon and I began to walk back to the cart that I had. And I ran my shin into the corner of that wooden pallet. Anybody ever do that? That hurts. I'm trying not to drop the watermelon, stumbling across Kroger's, trying to grab my buggy with one hand, all the while watching a woman and her young daughter laugh at me during this whole process. I straightened up. I felt like someone had broken my leg off right below the knee, but I acted like it didn't hurt. I bought the watermelon. I checked out. I had some other groceries. I went to the car. I got in the car, and I looked down to my shoe to make sure it wasn't filling up with blood because it literally felt like I was dying. I got home, I got busy doing some other stuff, and the pain became tolerable. It got to a point where really, honestly, I didn't even hardly think about it anymore until that night when I got undressed and got ready for bed, and I looked down, and I had about a four-inch gash in my leg where I'd peeled the skin off and gone about a half-inch deep in my leg, and it was really one of the worst-looking things I've seen in a long time. Sorry to be so graphic. But I began to realize that even though I had been tolerating the pain, if I didn't do something to take care of that, that could become something that affected not just my leg, but something that affected my whole body. You know what I'm talking about. You let stuff like that go, you get an infection, it ends up being something huge. I was thinking about that the other day when I was preparing for this sermon. I thought, isn't that exactly the way we are with the way we tolerate certain things? I mean, when something first comes into our life, it comes into our culture, whether as a nation or as a church or as a family, sometimes it hits us and the immediate pain is, wow, this isn't right. Wow, this is, is against who I am or against what God wants. But after a while, we, we learn to tolerate it, the pain. It's not so bad when we get used to it. And then we take a look at it, and again, we're like, eh, well, you know what? It's not so bad. But we know if we don't take care of it, it can make a lot of things go bad. And we have a choice. Do we take care of it? Or do we just tolerate it? Dorothy Sayers said about the word tolerance one time. She said, in the world it's called tolerance, but in hell it's called despair. It's the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we should be tolerant people. I am as opposed as you can imagine to what's going on in the church in so many areas today and kind of the, the incredible judgmental attitude that we have that pervades so much of our life and denomination to denomination and church to church that has caused us to be totally split on issues that should not split us. I read this uh, a while ago. I thought it was really good. It says, Scott says, I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. And I immediately ran over and said, stop, don't do it. And the guy says, why shouldn't I? And I said, well, there's so much to live for. And he responds, like what? He says, well, are you religious or are you an atheist? He says, I'm religious. He said, me too. Are you a Christian or Jewish? He says, I'm Christian. He says, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He says, I'm Protestant. He says, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? He says, I'm Baptist. He says, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God? 
Or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? And he says, Baptist Church of God. And he says, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? He says, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He says, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915, to which I said, die, heretics, come, and pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> so, uh, as funny as that is, is, isn't it the truth? Yeah. It, it is so sad how true it is that so many of us in the Christian family ha have become so judgmental of other people who may not believe exactly the way we believe or worship exactly the way we worship or look exactly the way we look or talk exactly the way we talk. And that's what, not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today hits all of us, every one of us, whether we're on the liberal side of the polit political world or on the conservative side, we all have sin that we need to own up to and quit tolerating. We all have sin that we need to make sure doesn't become a part of our life so much that we're just able to live with it and deal with it. And so we began looking at these churches called, that we've been calling the Eighth Church because there are seven churches in Revelation and, and it all fits to the rest of us, the Eighth Church, all of us who follow Christ as Lord and Savior. And today we're going to look at this place called Thyatira or Thyatira, whichever pronunciation you want to use. And I want us to go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29, to hear what Jesus has to say to this specific church. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that now you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless... I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first thing to understand here, to look at here, is that just like the other churches we've looked at in the last, uh, in the couple of sermons that I did before I was going for a couple of weeks, we, we saw that there's always this kind of con commendation and then condemnation. This kind of commendation of this is what you're doing well. And, and in Thyatira what's happening is it's a little bit different than the churches we looked at in Laodicea and in Ephesus <clears throat> because here they are actually commended for the love that they have. Not just for the deeds that they're doing, but also for the love that has persevered, that has kind of led them to do these great works, to do these wonderful things. 
But what's going on in this area is there are these guilds, these metalworking guilds and other kind of guilds around the work that the people are doing. And each of them would have kind of their own, their own God. And they would have prophetesses and so forth. And, and they would have kind of sexual immorality as part of their worship to, to have their God to bless the work that they're doing. And all of this is happening in the midst of these Christians who are in this church, and obviously some of this is, is people are coming to church, but they're also doing this other worship of these other gods. And what's happening is Jesus is paralleling this back to, uh, Revelation is paralleling this back to Jezebel in the Old Testament, and, and basically just saying, look, you're tolerating sinfulness in the church. You're tolerating things in the church that should not be tolerated, but I commend you for having good hearts that lead you to good deeds. And, and let's look at that just real quick for a minute before we go into kind of the negative. Realize that the relationship of love to service and of faith to perseverance is right here in this one little verse. That and if we really want to do those good things, we need to have love for others. And if we want to persevere and have faith that lasts and makes a difference, we have to persevere. God is concerned, as we've seen in all of these churches, with our hearts. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we remember Jesus' words and talking about the fact that, that what happens outwardly comes from what's going on inwardly. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose the brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. But show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. Now, if you put what Jesus says all throughout his ministry in the earth, you put what James says... You put what's going on in this, these letters to the churches in Revelation. What you have here is you have this, you need to have a heart of faith and a heart of love that then spurs you to do good deeds. That's not hard, is it? That doesn't seem like that's much more than common sense, right? Shake your head. Say yes, amen, something, if you agree with me, right? Just tell me, let me know you're awake out there. I, I've been kind of caught, and I'll be kind of be honest with you. In my lifetime, I've been kind of caught. Because I'm not quite as conservative as some of my friends. And I'm not near as liberal as some of my friends. And I've been, kind of been this guy without a theological home in a lot of the meetings I've been a part of. Because I don't really relate to this side that's way over here. And I don't really relate to this side that's way over here. And I find myself in the middle. And, and what happens is these folks will say, you have no heart. They'll say, you know what, you're all doctrine. You, you don't have a heart. You, you don't love people enough. Your, your deeds, you don't do enough. We need to, to just love people and nothing else matters. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's true. I think there is something that matters in what we believe. There is something that matters in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is built upon right doctrine that's taught in the Holy Scriptures that he gave us. And, and then over here, people are, are, are like, well, you don't believe everything right. I don't care what you do you got to get the belief right. You hear what I'm saying? Have you experienced this? Here, let me just wrap it up for you. Because, you know, I'm going anyways in just a few weeks, right? 
it, it, I'm going to say it just this plain. People in the liberal part of the aisle are some of the most loving, caring people who do the most wonderful work in the world, and they way outdo us on the conservative side. They outlove us. They serve people, and they love people in a way that is shown in their deeds a lot more as a whole than we do on the conservative side. On the conservative side, we get a lot of the doctrine right, I think. And the personal relationship with Jesus, right? It doesn't matter what we believe. I don't think God wants us on one side or the other. I think he wants us right here. Believe in me. Don't tolerate sin in your life. And out of that belief and out of that doctrine, love others with the love of God. We fail to do that. On this side, we say the doctrine is, well, you know what? I believe that homosexuality is a sin, which I do. So that must mean that I don't love homosexuals. Absolutely untrue. I love everybody because I know I'm just as big a sinner as anyone else, no matter what their sin is, and God loves me. And, and I can believe what the Bible has to say and still love people no matter what they believe and not cast them out and not treat them like they're something less than me or anybody else. And on this side... It's not okay just to love everybody because you can give everybody all the love in the world, but folks, the greatest gift you give them is a gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We need to let them know that we love because God first loved us. That we love because God can forgive us and, and restore us to a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And y'all can argue with me if you want. You have to do that by email because I'm leaving right after I'm done today. But... This is kind of what I believe, and I think it's what, what the uh, writer of Revelation is getting to here and what John is, is, is being revealed to John in this scripture. So we're com they're commended for their heart being right and for doing good things, but then there is this, this opposite of being commended that they're tolerating sin in their midst. Now, now again, let's just make sure we get to the point here Let's take a look at, at what's going on in this church, and God is talking to this church, and, and let us realize, first of all, that God is not angry at them because he loves to be angry, and he's not angry at them because they, quote-unquote, aren't getting it right. He's angry, and he has this harsh language here because he loves them. And, and that's something that we, I think missed so often in the church because we've stopped talking about sin so much and that's this that God's anger with sin is out of love for us I have a friend who <coughs> who has a, a sister who raised her kids and her kids really don't mind very well but what she says is they need to learn everything with as little interference from her as possible and, and so they are learning their lessons of life at three and four and five years old on their own. And so I asked uh, this friend of mine, well, what does it look like when you visit their house? She said, well, this is what it looks like. And some of you remember this show years ago. Um, I think it was Lost in Space. You remember that, Will Robinson? Any of you remember? And they would run around, that robot would say, danger, 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 Will Robinson, right? So that's what it's like. Mom just runs around the house saying, danger, 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 danger. But there's never correction. There's never stopping them from doing anything. Let them just kind of learn their lessons on their own. This is not the way God works with us. God hates sin because of what it does to us. Sin has no power over God. 
But sin has power over us. It's like a child touching a hot stove or walking out in front of a speeding car. You're going to do everything you can. The child is going to think you're the meanest parent in the world, but you're going to do everything you can because you love the kid and you don't want to see him get hurt. That's why God hates sin. So to love him is to love people is to tell them the truth. To love people is to do deeds of love. It is to serve humbly. It is to let people know that in no way am I over you. In no way do I love you less because you're participating in this particular sin. But we are doing nobody any favor at all if we stop telling people what sin is. Matter of fact, we're doing them the greatest disservice of all in the church because we are supposed to have the truth in God's word. We are supposed to be the one who care enough to say, look, you need to change the way you're living. I love you too much to see the consequences of what comes in this kind of life. Romans 6, 22 and 23. Every one of you probably in here have heard this at some time in your life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you enough to protect you from sin, to, eat, to eventually, ultimately destroy it in hell. Sin is your greatest enemy. It is the thing that will ruin your marriage. It is the thing that will ruin your happiness and your joy and your peace. It is the thing that will take your life for eternity. And so the first thing we need to understand is when God seems like he's harsh towards sin, it is he's harsh towards sin because he loves the people who it's affecting. Now, this is where we mess up in the church, right? Because so often the way we talk about sin, and I will own this as a pastor, so often the way my colleagues and I have talked about sin, we come across that, well, if you aren't living the way you should be in God's eyes, you are some kind of loser. And I'll stand up here and righteously proclaim that you ought to be as good as I am. Well, I'm the first one to stand here and tell you, raise my hand. 90% of you out there are probably a whole lot better than I am as a person. I have all kinds of sin in my life. Have I gotten rid of all of it? Absolutely not. I still fight it and deal with it every day because I'm a human being. And is my sin any less than yours? No. Is yours any greater than mine? No. Will yours hurt you? Yes. Will mine hurt me? Yes. So we ought to be trying to help each other escape it. We ought to be trying to help each other not be a victim to it. And we do that by telling the truth. We also do that by not messing with sin. It's like playing with a rattlesnake. It's like saying to our kids, this will hurt you. And you need to be really careful, but here, take your best shot. Right? Help yourself to this. And we would never do that. So why in the church do we change the scripture so that people will like us and will be popular? Isn't it amazing how much theology changes when the culture starts to assault us for believing what we believe? Isn't it amazing that people who used to believe something 20 years ago now believe something different? That things that we believed as a church, not denominationally, but across the board, across almost all the denominations, across almost all the kind of historical strands of the faith, isn't it amazing how that will change when we start having to stand up for what we believe in a culture that differs from us? gives us an amazing opportunity to love people even though they don't agree with us but it doesn't and should never mean that we give up on our beliefs now do I think that we're always right 
Do I think that in his history we've always been right? Absolutely not. Do I think that we shouldn't ever change any of our beliefs? Absolutely not. But we should never change our beliefs because of cultural pressure. We should change our beliefs because the Holy Spirit working in our lives through studying the Scripture and experiencing Christ and saying, you know what, I've come to this realization through my study and my prayer that this is probably more what God wants out of me and this is probably more what this Scripture means. Not because everybody else says that's what it means and we're somehow less popular than we used to be because we believe that. <clears throat> I'm just ranting and raving now. I'm totally lost in my own notes. So... <clears throat> Don't mess with sin, okay? Don't mess with sin. And here's, here's the thing. When sin comes into the church, it can be this incredibly um, just loud thing, right? I'm reminded of the story of this farmer who went to this local restaurant and said, look, I know you guys serve frog legs, and I want to supply you frog legs. I've got at least 20,000 frogs in my pond. He's like, 20,000? He said, yeah. He said, I can give you frog, frog legs from now until whenever. And I'll bring you two or three hundred a week. And the restaurant owner said, well, that would be plenty. You know, I'll cancel my order with the supplier, and you just bring me the frog legs. At the end of the week, the farmer walked in. He had two sets of frog legs. He said, uh, I apologize, but it seems these two frogs make a lot more noise than I thought they could. <laughs> right? That's what happens in the church. That's what happens in our culture. That's what happens in our families. See, sin has a way of kind of putting a megaphone on everything. And sometimes we, we begin to put all of our energy and effort into, into this big megaphone thing instead of just saying, okay, you know what, this is just not who we are. Let's just go on with what we're doing. We're not going to tolerate that. It's okay to say we're not going to tolerate that. One of my things in business meetings and other parts of the church today is I think there's way too much of the truth not being told between family members. There's way too much of us sitting in meetings and stuff and not saying what we think and saying what the Lord's put on our hearts in a kind, gracious, Christian kind of way. And we walk outside on the steps and we find someone who agrees with us and we talk about it. Or we send an email or we make a phone call. It's not the way the church is supposed to be. We ought to be dealing with these things so that we can honestly try to be who God wants us to be and do what God wants us to, be, to do. So sometimes we tolerate our own sin while being intolerant of other sin. See, that, that's where we do so often as a church, right? Well, let me tell you, you would never catch me doing that. But I guarantee you, we'd catch you doing something that God doesn't like. Something that's not according to God's will. And, and if we keep on being focused on everyone else's sin and not focused on our own, remember Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You what? Here, say it out loud. Own it. Hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we need to really take inventory of our own sin. What is it that I need to do? Who do I need to become? What does God need to do in my life? What do I need to surrender to the Holy Spirit? Now, that doesn't mean that we're not openly, uh, you know, adhering to the word and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, you know, uh, sex outside of marriage is sinful according to God's word. It's okay to say that. The problem is, is that we've got plenty of our own sin to deal with. We don't need to go around crusading against people who are committing that sin and not paying attention to sin in our own life. Let me tell you something. 
I guarantee you, if you are serious about the sin in your own life, you'll be much more qualified to help people struggle and get out of the sin in their lives. People do not respect you for preaching at them. People do not respect you for coming to them as you're more righteous than they are. People respect you if you love them enough to say, hey, you know what? I really don't want you to live in this way because I totally believe that this leads to destruction. My own life, I grew up, I've told you all before, I'm nothing but a redneck who has some degrees. And uh, I, don't, I can't get out of that either, by the way. Um, when I was growing up, I was hunting with my dad all the time, and, and uh, he had a friend. His friend worked with him. My dad was a mechanic and a service manager for a truck leasing company all of his life. And, and uh, that's a rough crowd if you haven't been around truck drivers and mechanics and stuff. They, they can be pretty rough. I grew up around that. I, I grew up right in the midst of it. My dad was, is the most awesome dad in the world. and He would take me to work and take me on trips and stuff when I was just little. And, and uh, I was hunting with this friend, and I'll just call this friend Al. And uh, Al and I hunted together every deer season, and, and uh, there came a couple of times when, when I got older and I was kind of a young teenager, I was really serious about the Lord, and, and Dad had to work, and I would just go with Al. And Al became a really close friend, and it was very clear that Al did not know the Lord, and he frankly didn't care for people who did. And especially didn't care for preachers. And I began as I started to prepare to go into ministry, and he knew that. I began to understand that somewhere in Al's life, some preacher probably had done something really not good. And that's probably because he had this real kind of attitude. So you fast forward, I'm about 19 or 20 years old. I'm still hunting with him every year. I've gotten to know him. I, I know his family well and all that kind of stuff. And every single time I'm around him, the Lord says to me, tell him about me. And every single time, because on these things, I usually know more than Jesus does, I would say, Lord, he's not interested, right? And I would go home and I'd feel bad, but it'd go away. And the next year, we'd get ready to go deer hunting again for a week, and I'd think, oh, no, I'm going to be convicted all week long. So finally, after deer season one year, I came home, and I felt so like I know God wants me talking about Jesus. I call him on the phone. I say, Al, I want to come to your house and visit you. He said, well, you know you're welcome out here anytime, Ed. And I said, well, no, here's the deal. I'm going to come talk to you about Jesus. And there's this pause. And he says, all right, come on out. Right? So I go out, and I sit down. And I say to him, I say, Al, here's the deal. I don't know what you believe. My guess is you probably believe something completely different than what I believe, but I have to do this because of what I believe. And it's just like it came to me. I said, here's, here's kind of the way it is. If you were starving to death and I had a truckload of food, I would feel like I was not the friend I need to be if I didn't offer you the food. Even if you said, I don't want your food, for my sake, I would have to offer it to you because that's what I believe is I believe I have what you need. The fact is, you know me, right? He says, yes. I said, I'm not going to ask you what you believe, but let me ask you a question. Do you think I believe what I say I believe? He said, I know you believe what you believe. And he said, by the way, I'm not interested, but one thing I would like to know is if you've believed this all along, why did you not share with me if you really think I'm not going to go to heaven? 
And I sit there like I have no answer for that. No answer at all. Maybe because I wanted you to like me. Maybe because I didn't want you to reject something I believed. But the fact is, I wasn't much of a friend. So let me tell you something. Even if someone's on a theological other end of the spectrum that you are, and you think something's a sin and they don't, if they know you think it is, you're not much of a friend to not deal with and say, hey, I think that this is going to lead to bad things in your life. It's up to them to let God work in their lives. But it's up to us on the basis of what we believe to love others and tell the truth. And if we live in such a way that people look at us and say, I believe you believe what you say you believe, then we've got cred to do that. We've got respect to do that. We've got credibility to do that. There is victory for hearts that are right, and there's destruction for those that are not. And what we need to learn as the eighth church is this. We need to love, and the deeds need to show our love. And people do not need to pass any sort of litmus test to receive that love. They don't need to be a certain way, believe a certain thing, look a certain way. Jesus died for everybody. While we were yet sinners, right? While you and I are yet sinners, Jesus died for us. There's no litmus test. We love because of what God has done in us, but that doesn't mean we surrender what we believe and we tolerate sin in our midst. We need to do both. We need to try to let the Lord work so that we hang on to those things that we know are right in doctrine, but also love others. And I believe this is what God calls us to. Let's pray.